0: People living with uncertainty today need confidence about the future. People who are enduring hardship in this world need the confidence and the certainty of rescue in the world to come. And we've been looking at uh, this book, and we looked last week at chapter 6, and this unfolding story of history. Uh, from the throne of heaven... The Lord Jesus initiates the opening of the scrolls of God's plans for the world. Now that Jesus, as the Lamb of God who was slain, is seated on the throne, we are now in the last days. The climactic event of all history has taken place through Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to the place of all power and authority. In a sense, everything after that pinnacle moment on the cross, everything after that marks the beginning of the end. Now the Lord Jesus opens the seals on the scroll we saw last week one by one propelling God's plans and purposes forward. Each seal unleashes a, a dimension of God's judgment on the world. The the four horsemen let loose war and mayhem, violence and murder, scarcity and famine, plagues and death. And in the midst of all those judgments there is persecution and martyrdom. For the people of God. And ultimately, the sixth seal will one day bring the full force of God's wrath. Uh, it, it's a scene of cosmic disruption. The sun, the moon, the stars, mountains and islands roll away. And all the people of the earth, great and small, who have spurned the gospel, hide away in caves and want the rocks to cover them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And chapter six finishes. With these words, for the great day of their wrath has come, who can withstand it? Uh, chapter 6 is a terrifying picture of punishment being unleashed on this world as the Lord Jesus executes God's justice on this world. And chapter 6 plays out what happens to people who are hostile towards God. Of course, the question is, but, but what about God's people? What about the Lord's people? What about Christian believers? What will happen to God's faithful people? And we get a vision of what will happen uh, to God's people in chapter 7. Uh, one of the movies currently enjoying some box office success is Oppenheimer. I haven't seen it, uh, but it's written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, he is an English director famous for movies not only where he tells the story in a kind of sort of non-linear way, but he, but he also incorporates sort of time-bending elements that are experienced by the characters uh, themselves. So uh, the movie Inception, it's an espionage plot happening inside the mind of someone who's dreaming about themselves, having a dream, and how time slows down in the dream world. Or the movie *Tenant*, where spies and terrorists are literally moving past one another, fighting one another, as one goes backward in time and one goes forward in time. Uh, but Christopher Nolan has also used these sort of timeline sort of skills with the movie Dunkirk. Uh, it's a retelling, a famous story of the 300,000-plus 3, British soldiers rescued from the French coastline as the German army crushed Allied forces in 1940. And the way that Nolan gives his account of Dunkirk is by weaving together three storylines. But they operate on different timescales. So we have a week on the land, a day at sea, and an hour in the air. And the week on land is compressed, it, it hits the high spots as the, as the soldiers, chased by the German army, uh, form on the beach and will they make it and they fight their way there and so forth. And then the day at sea, uh, relatively complete, the flotilla of civilian boats setting out before dawn, crossing the channel, collecting uh, soldiers and then sailing back uh, across. And then the hour in the air. Blow by blow, intense air combat happening over Dun- Dunkirk. Now, now while you're watching the movie, it kind of feels like all of these segments are just sort of unrolling and it happens one after each other, but that isn't the case. You, you begin to realise as you watch that, that the soldiers on the ground, I just happen to see in the background a couple of planes engaged in a dogfight, which is actually a scene that comes later in the movie, but this time it's from the perspective of the pilots, and what was a few seconds and incidental on the ground now is experienced in the air and takes several minutes to tell. See, the movie tells this miraculous rescue of all these soldiers from the beach of Dunkirk, but it does so by showing the same events from different perspectives with different timescales. Well, something like that is happening with the book of Revelation. Now, chapters 6 and 7 uh, don't really show us a sequence with the events of chapter 7 following on from the events of chapter 6. But rather, sort of two different scenes get played out at the same time from two different angles. Uh, when we get the opening words of chapter 7, after this I saw, it's not a sequence of events, but a sequence of Visions. That is, uh, John first saw the vision of chapter 6, then in chapter 7 he sees another vision. Um, and chapter 7 gives us two scenes, a kind of before and after. But it doesn't mean that chapter 7 follows chronologically from chapter 6. Uh, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, gives us a vision of what happens to God's people before the judgments of chapter 6 begin to unfold. And verses 10 to 16 of chapter 7 give it a vision of what happens to God's people after the judgments of chapter 6 have unfolded in full force. So that in chapter 7, we get to see God's people sealed on earth and secondly, God's people singing in heaven. Let's just look at it under those two titles. Firstly, God's people sealed on earth. Chapter 7 verse 1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. Now, if we're expecting a chronological sequence of events going from chapter 6 to chapter 7, we're going to get twisted into kind of strange knots. Because if the judgment, the great judgment, comes at the end of chapter 6, then how can we, at the beginning of chapter 7, be sealing or marking people before the judgment comes? And it's that kind of chronological mismatch that leads some Christians, I think, to, to construct this complicated sequence of end times events. But the simplest way to understand this material is not to assume that everything presented to us is in chronological order. It may be in the order of the visions that John sees, but that doesn't mean that the visions are in chronological order of how things will happen. Now, chapter 7 seems to be an alternative view, a different perspective, a, a variant angle of events uh, that have unfolded, uh, in chapter 6. See, judgment is coming in chapter 6, but before that happens, the four angels who will unleash the winds on the earth, well, last week we looked at the four horsemen, and we looked at Zechariah 6. And we, if you go to Zechariah 6, you'll see four horsemen and four spirits, or four winds, or four breaths, because it's the same word, wind, breath, spirit. So, uh, so the idea of having four winds here in chapter seven is a link to four horsemen in chapter six. Now, as with uh, all of this book, uh, symbolic language is being used, and those symbols are drawn from the Old Testament. And we have this sealing of the hundred and forty-four thousand, sealing or marking people, setting them apart. Is a, it's an allusion back to the Jewish Passover. You know, when God's people were slaves in Egypt, it was God's intention to rescue them. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, refused. No, he's not going to let those people go to freedom. And so God sent various devastating plagues on the Egyptians. Last plague, the most devastating, the death of the firstborn at midnight. But before that plague came, before the destroyer passed through the land, God's people were instructed have a meal of roast lamb. And when you kill that lamb, take some of its blood and put it on the doorpost to mark out those who should be protected and kept safe. It was a marker. It said, one of God's people lives in this house. Don't touch this house when the judgment comes. It's an image that Ezekiel uses in chapter 9. Again, uh, God's people marked out. It's language that the Apostle Paul uses of Christians in Ephesians 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. The gospel of your salvation when you believed. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Here in Revelation, that the seal doesn't have to be a literal have a literalistic kind of meaning, as though there is a stamp on your forehead. Uh, or some such thing to show that you're a Christian, or there's a special kind of you know, Christian tattoo that you're going to get on your arm. It doesn't need to be understood pedantically that way about Christian people any more than it needs uh, the corresponding opposite mark that comes later in the book, the mark of the beast, needs to be a literal stamp on someone's body. Now, this is a promise of a mark or a seal, it's saying that God knows those who belong to him. And he's marked them out, even before the judgment comes, so that they won't suffer any ultimate spiritual harm, so that they will be saved. The judgments unleashed through the four horsemen in chapter 6, the judgments of conquest and civil unrest and famine and death, these are unsettling, they're unshocking for anyone. But for those who trust in the Lord Jesus, they are ultimately safe. God has marked them out. They will have to endure wars and famine and even death like everyone else. But it's not a judgment on them. No, it's a trial that shows their faith to be real and true. So verse 3, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. And like the other numbers in this book, 144,000 is symbolic. It's a figurative number. We're not meant to count up and worry 98, 99, 144,000 when that number of Christians worldwide exceeds that total. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they do take this number very literally. And so they have a problem because sadly there are more than 144,000 of them. It's a figurative number. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, times a big number, a 1,000, is 144,000. 144,000 people represents the full number, the complete total, represents all God's people, Jew and Gentile. It's a way of saying that all of God's people, as promised in the Old Testament, all of them will be gathered safely together. And please see the way that John... Gives us that total with this list of the tribes. Now, the variations in the names of the tribes, but the layout is exactly like the book of Numbers, where what is being numbered off is actually an army, God's army preparing to go into the promised land. Which is kind of fitting when the, each of the seven churches in chapters two and three are challenged to be victorious. Believers are to fight the good fight. How? Well, oh, Remember this fifth seal in chapter 6? I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Or again in chapter 12, they triumphed by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, God's people are sealed. They're marked out for ultimate rescue but God's people will have to engage and endure the spiritual battle by being faithful to Christ, no matter the cost. Now, we live in a world experiencing judgment. The four horsemen, the four winds, they're bringing war and unrest and scarcity and death as pointers of a coming final judgment, the sixth seal that's on its way. And Christian people like us need to live and persevere through a troubled and painful world. But we do so with the knowledge that the Lord Jesus knows who are his. He's marked us out. He's numbered us off. He won't lose one of his people. So keep going. Stay faithful with John and God's holy people through the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. God's people are sealed on earth. Uh, secondly, God's people are singing in heaven. Verse 9, After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Again, it's another vision. But, but now we are looking at the people of God after the judgments of chapter 6. You see, look down to verse 14. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. The 144,000 was sealed and marked out before the tribulation and trials pictured in chapter 6. And now we have this great multitude that no one can count gathered before the throne after the tribulations and trials of chapter 6. Now, what's the relationship between these two groups? Now, some want to argue, oh, the 144,000 is one group of people, and the uncountable multitude, well, that's obviously another group of people. But do notice how John describes the two groups. Uh, John says, verse 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. But then, verse 9, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. Uh, John's already used this approach uh, back in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 5, he said he heard the messianic titles, lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, but then, next verse, he saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. See, just as seeing the lamb reframes and reinterpret what it means to be uh, the Messiah, the king, and how victory is won, So, so seeing the multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language reframes and reinterprets the idea of what the people of God are. They're not two distinct groups. The 144,000, the great multitude, are, are different ways of thinking about and describing the one people of God. So we have in this great multitude this uncountable sea of humanity from every nation, tribe, people and language... Here is the promise to Abraham, fulfilled. Your descendants will be like as numerous as the stars in the sky, as many grains of sand as there are on the seashore. Here's the promise for this fledgling churches scattered across the Roman world that we read about in chapters 2 and 3, tiny congregations dwarfed by their pagan neighbours. Christian churches and Christian believers are not going to be wiped off the planet. No, no, on the last day, there'll be this overwhelmingly massive number of believers welcomed into eternal glory. Uh, tragically, the number of Christians in New Zealand is shrinking, like many Western countries. But globally, oh, the gospel is advancing in leaps and bounds. More and more people are becoming Christian. Revelation 7 tells us that Jesus really is building his church. And what a church it is. Believers from every nation, tribe, people and language. Uh, two quick observations just about that, that every nation, tribe, people and language. Our first one, the people of God are not going to be transformed into sort of one indistinguishable group of carbon copy people. Heaven is multicultural, multilingual, a multi-ethnic reality. We don't shed our culture like a skin when we enter heaven a biblical truth is not monocultural oh, the bible's written in multiple languages uh, in multiple cultural contexts god doesn't finally make his home in any one of them oh, the dominant culture where we live now white western that is not the dominant culture of heaven it's just one of many now, there'll be no place in heaven for any cultural imperialism, so there should be no place for it on earth now. Second one, uh, biblical truth is transcultural. That is, any and every culture can receive the gospel, express it in their own language and customs, and yet there's only one true gospel. There's this view of ultimate reality, and heaven says, now, it, it's wrong to think one culture is superior to all the others, but it's also wrong to think that all cultures are equally the same. See, the message of the Bible will affirm some aspects of all cultures and challenge some aspects of all cultures. Now, the gospel will find a home in all cultures, but the gospel will also transform with it from within each and every culture. The vision of heaven being, uh, forf- being filled with those who come from every nation and tribe and people and language should give Christians a true and better understanding of what it means to live in a multicultural society. Well, John goes on and says to, of this great multitude, verse 9, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is celebration in heaven, there is singing because the sealed and marked out people of God have come safely through the ordeal of judgment on the earth. Verse 13, and one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who were they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Uh, that is a bizarre picture. That you could wash clothes in blood and they would come out dazzling white and clean. Uh, but this, this is a vivid image telling us that the only way to be safe on the final day is to be washed in the sacrificial Blood, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb. The same Lamb who was angry when his offering of forgiveness was rejected and thrown back in his face at the end of chapter six, the same Lamb is able to save and forgive and wash those who put their trust and hope in him. He washes them by his blood. It won't do anything for a white shirt, but it'll do wonders for a guilty conscience for a darkened soul, for a debt of sin before God? There's nothing a washing liquid can do for my moral wrongs or my spiritual failures. There's no, nothing that laundry detergent can do to rescue me from the judgment day. But what if there was a way of washing you on the inside, in your heart and mind and soul, so that you would be accepted by a holy God. Well, there is a way, says the book of Revelation. The blood of the Lamb, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the crucifixion of Christ 2,000 years ago, the sinless man who took our place, bore our punishment, this is the way to be safe before Almighty God. And in contrast to the terrors of chapter 6, what we have in chapter 7 is a picture of safety and security and singing. For all those who are trusting in Jesus. Verse 10, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There are no new ideas here that we can't really find elsewhere in the Bible. It's, it's really a very simple message. Life is tough. The signs of judgment are already at work in our world, pointing us toward a day of final judgment. But forgiveness is possible today through Jesus. Jesus. It's just a simple Christian message, but, but told in vivid, fluorescent, technicolour imagery. And as part of coming to the terms with the book of Revelation, it's important to see that chapter 6 and 7 are, are two panels that go together. Chapter 6 finishes with the, the great day of judgment. It doesn't have the colourful descriptions that we'll see later, but but this is the punishment of hell. And chapter 7 finishes with the great multitude gathered around the throne of God. It is the people of God in heaven. Now, as we go on in this book, we will travel down these two paths again. One that finishes in hell, one that finishes in heaven, repeatedly. As you just turn uh, to chapter 21, and uh, we get the same scene that we find in chapter 7. God, united to his people, in chapter seven, the, the focus is on are the people going up to heaven, so to speak, to be with God, but in chapter twenty one the focus is on God coming down from heaven to be with his people it 's the same reality just told from two different perspectives and the, the way that John ta- John we know that John is doing this is that he tells us uh, what 's happening and he gives the same commentary in each place. So here's chapter 7, verse 15. Uh, therefore they therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his, his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then chapter 21, verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now both... Both quote Isaiah 25 because both are describing essentially the same thing. Being with God forever in heaven. Now I know some of you have mental blueprints of uh, how the world should end and it's tempting to trust the blueprint and then you sort of cut and paste bits of Revelation to go where they go on the blueprint. What we're trying to do is just read the book of Revelation on its own terms. We want John to tell us how it should be read and understood. And after seven chapters, I think how John has directed us is, is relatively clear. As we push further on, it's going to get a little bit more complicated, but so far I think the message is reasonably straightforward. For the first readers, for the believers that uh, we see in the seven churches, representative of all, the, the vision is designed to comfort them. For Christians experiencing persecution in their world, it was a comfort. For Christians experiencing great persecution today in Iran or northern India or Nigeria, here is a passage that is of great comfort. For anyone pressured to turn away from the truth of the gospel or who are enduring hardship because they are living faithfully for the Lord Jesus, we all need to know that there is a God on the throne. We need to know that suffering is not endless. No, no, it will be limited. We need to know that judgment is certain. There will be justice on the last day. We need to know that God will keep his people safe, ultimately. And we need to know that the Lord Jesus is in charge and that there is a glorious future. Verse 17, For the lamb at the center of the throne will be our shepherd, he will lead us to springs of living water. And God will wipe, wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's the glory that we're all looking forward to and waiting in and trusting. And so we will serve the Lord Jesus as we look forward to that day when we will sing before him. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks and praise. That you tell us where we're going. You you give us a, a vision of the future. And it is wonderful and glorious. Fill our hearts with praise and thanks. Help us to join in today the song that we will sing on that great day. Help us to persevere through trial or hardship or difficulty. Knowing that we are marked out, we're sealed, we're protected you'll lose none entrusted to you. And help us to take this message of hope to a desperately needy world. For Jesus' sake, amen.